Hello. Hello, is this Bob? Yes, indeed. Well, do you remember us at all? It's been two years. Uh, gee, I'm uh, such an old fossil, I'm beginning to forget who's who. See, we didn't make any, any impression at all, Leighton. Well, that's okay. I don't remember him much either. I blame that on you. Yeah, I, I think I do remember. I've been interviewed by a couple of different teams of uh, folks, and I'm not quite sure offhand. We're the irreligiosophy guys. We interviewed you about just a bunch of different stuff, kind of random Old and New Testament stuff a couple of years ago. I, very, think I do remember that. Yeah. Very entertaining, and our listeners have wanted you back. And one of us, one of them, emailed us about uh, your new book on the Book of Mormon. So here we are. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah yeah! Right. Yeah, the uh, Latter Day Scripture. Yes. Yes. So why would you want to beat your head against the wall? Is what we all wanted to know. Actually, this came out of a uh, thing called the Book of Mormon Roundtable at Brigham Young University, though uh, the conservatives didn't like it much, and we only met about three times, three different years. And uh, But we had people that were open-minded uh, intellectual Mormons and uh, sympathetic ex-Mormons, liberal Mormons, and interested non-Mormons. So we had really good uh, papers and discussions from all different standpoints. And this was most of these were my contributions to that. And uh, I found it very interesting to uh, to say, okay, the thing is not an ancient document. Given what it is, what can we learn about it using biblical criticism techniques? And I found it pretty fascinating. So wait, you don't think that Joseph Smith used the Urim and Thummim to translate a set of golden plates that he unearthed underneath a rock that had been sitting there for 1,500 years? Now, I do think he used what he thought was the Urim and Thummim, some sort of seer stone. Uh, whether he was freely composing like Lord Dunsany did uh, with, with this as some sort of a... Uh, I don't know, a crutch uh, or, or what, I, I don't know, uh, but uh, I think he did just, of course, write it out of his head and did an amazing job. It's, on the whole, not very interesting, but when you look at the technique, <laughs> in a sense, it becomes interesting. Well, what, what do you have to say about just the terrible grammar in the book? I mean, literally, it's, it's horrible to read because uh, he walks five feet and then he turns and walks five more feet and they describe it in the verses. Well, uh, it, it isn't. Uh, what was it? Uh, did Mark Twain say it was the Book of Mormon or Mary Baker Eddy's book that was chloroform in print? No, it was the Book of Mormon. Uh, it was the Book of Mormon. Yeah, yeah. and it is uh, on the whole. It's not that interesting. It's uh, it's like more of the least interesting stuff in the Bible, the so-called Deuteronomic history of uh, Samuel Kings and so on. But I have to admit, of all of the uh, pseudo-Bibles out there, he really did have a knack for how ancient writers wrote, and sometimes it was plodding and uh, and uh, and boring, but uh, it, it, at least he did accomplish... I'm, I'm not really trying to stick up for him. These were things that surprised me. That it, there, there are some good points, though, you really have to kind of be looking at it through a certain lens to see him. Well, I mean, of course, with Joseph Smith, he was uh, quite the charming individual. I mean, he essentially l started an entire church and sent men away so he could marry their wives. I mean, not many people have the balls to get away with that. Yeah, an amazing character, and a lot like certain other founder figures that... Uh, in fact, I have an article coming out in 
free inquiry, I think, in the fall, uh, which is the whole issue is devoted to Mormonism. And I, I uh, have this article, uh, Joseph Smith, liar, lord, or lunatic. And uh, I, I suggest what he did in, in uh, uh, you know, academic terms he would never have, have uh, learned about. He, he had kind of associated himself with a trickster archetype that appears in so many myths, and that that's what he was. He was both a kind of a Krishna-like prankster and, and also believed he was creating a, uh, a new world for people to live in, and he succeeded. It's like a world religion in its own right. So he's, he's very much like Madame Blavatsky and, and some other people in the same way. You can tell they were hoaxers, but they also were seriously into it somehow. Yeah, your, thing. your book, it's called Latter-day Scripture, mm-hmm. uh, is, is kind of taking the Book of Mormon from the perspective of pseudepigrapha, where, where as a biblical scholar, you're looking at kind of why it was done, how it was done, and, and what we can learn from uh, the the whole process. Basically, reading this book, it's clear that um, even more clear than reading the Book of Mormon, that you know we talked about last time that that the New Testament often these writers would stray in areas that they really had no idea, and so they'd take a pastiche of Old Testament stuff and stick it together, uh, like the crucifixion scene, for example. Yeah. Um, apparently, Joseph Smith is doing that for the both the Old and the New Testament. He he's just grabbing stuff right and left and kind of putting it into different um, centos. I guess. The whole Book of Mormon, I guess, is a cento. Yes, that's exactly right. That's just what I think was happening. They, and he was, uh, he was doing just what the New Testament writer, or at least the Gospel writers and Acts, uh, what they were doing with the Old Testament. So you can, on the one hand, you can say, well, they're both historical frauds, but on the other, you can say they're, they're cre- amazingly created literary works. Uh, not historical information by any stretch. But, uh, yeah, one of the running themes that, that you pointed out was <laughs> the tension between um, writing an Old Testament that actually had the New Testament in mind. You know that it, it couldn't yeah. possibly be historical because <laughs> they're looking forward very specifically to this atoning Savior figure in a way that no one did in the Old Testament. Um, but there's oh, that wait. tension there. Yeah, though this is just what average Protestants thought the Old Testament people were like, that they uh, they really knew all about uh, the coming Messiah, might not have known he was going to be named Jesus, but it almost didn't matter. They knew he would be uh, sacrificed for sin and all of that stuff. I mean, as a, as preposterous as that is, but you're dealing with people that, was to- that were told every week that uh, the Old Testament is filled with prophecies of Jesus, and we just can't understand how his contemporaries didn't realize he was fulfilling the prophecies, right. and so they must have been spiritually blind. Well, the Book of Mormon just takes that for granted, and, and in effect, writes a new Old Testament that actually reads that way. It may, it's very interesting because these guys are, you know, they're circumcising, they're sacrificing, they're doing all this stuff, and the question is why? 
Why that bother? even comes up in the Book of Mormon, which is another mark of the, <laughs> the historical spuriousness of it. Somebody actually says, well, wait a minute, uh, if we're already believing and even being baptized in the name of Jesus, the forthcoming Son of God, what the heck's the point of all these sacrifices and stuff that are preparatory? And, uh, and then they, uh, some, some authoritative figure says, well, since it hasn't actually happened, we still have to do it. I mean, if the, <laughs> the fact that this is like a... This is obviously a, a problem that arises from their understanding of pre uh, what is it uh, pre Jesus Christians uh, and and they're trying to deal with that problem in this late historically spurious text uh, kind of a damage control thing oh yeah right. and my my father points to that very scripture all the time talking about how it doesn't matter if it doesn't make sense to us we just have to obey god and follow what he says to do and so he i, I heard that scripture just a thousand times and it really doesn't make a single lick of sense yeah it just pretty much says you have to anyway uh, it's almost like an old story of uh, Yohanan ben Zakai. I think it was he uh, who uh, one day he's uh, out uh, doing something, and uh, some Gentile smart aleck comes up to him and says, uh, uh, Rabbi, this, uh, I've been looking at your Torah, and this thing about the ashes of the red heifer atoning, uh, cleansing from sin, you have the gall to accuse us of magic, and, and you do stuff like this? What's the difference? And the rabbi system, you're right, my son. It, it does the ashes of a cow can't take away sins. It, uh, it that is really magic. And oh, oh, okay, uh, thanks, rabbi. And the guy leaves, and the rabbi's disciple is flabbergasted, and he says, "Rabbi, I, I can't believe I heard what you just said. You mean it? Uh, the the sacrifice doesn't." Uh, take away sin and all that, well then why the heck do we do it? And he says, because the Holy One of Israel said to. And we don't need any rational, any rationale, he just said to do it. Uh, and, but, but this seems to me to be a, and, and that's kind of interesting actually. Uh, it's uh, a question of, is this a uh, like a Kantian question, is this a hypothetical or a categorical imperative? Do we need to know this is going to achieve some end, or do we just do it because it's our duty? But in the Book of Mormon, it isn't really that. It's just a kind of a, a, a damage control thing for a, a, a goof in theology. Uh, yeah. What's the deal? Do you know about the atonement or don't you? And the whole epistle of the Hebrews is about how, well, of course, they did all these sacrifices because the real thing hadn't come and they didn't know it would. Uh, and then, now that makes sense, whether it's true or not. But this doesn't because you're on both, you got one uh, foot in each, each testament. Yeah, it's interesting that the, the problem, that tension, can only arise from a historical distance. It could never arise at the time. It's impossible. Yeah, that's my point. I, that's exactly as well can. put. Yeah. You can only, it only happens when you're looking back at this and trying to rewrite it. And I yeah. love it. There's a section in your book that, that highlights Mosiah 16, 6-7, right? And, and uh, I can't remember if this is King Benjamin's speech or what, but the guy he's talking says, and now if Christ had not come into the world, and then almost parenthetically, Speaking of things to come as though they had already come, there could have been no redemption. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. 
you that isn't love just the a Book big of Mormon is always doing that neon sign. You know, uh, I mean, you know, uh, uh, actually, this hasn't come yet. So, <laughs> if we could just change the tense of that last sentence, that'd be good. Yeah. Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> and some manuscripts in uh, somewhere in the Gospel of John it says no one has. Uh, been to heaven except for the Son of Man who is in heaven. Wait a minute, who's saying this? <laughs> uh, or in Second uh, Peter, supposedly by Simon Peter, and he says, now you remember how your apostles said that in, like predicted that in the last days scoffers would come. Well, that's happened. Wait a minute, uh, aren't you supposed to be one of these guys from the past? You know, who, who are you? They just kind of let the mask slip. Yeah, there's a lot of tension too with the 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 parousia, the, the delayed uh, advent, the second coming of Christ. How delayed it is, and that's also uh, even rearing its ugly head in the New Testament already. Um, oh yeah, several it, times. This, and they they apparently weren't at liberty to just rewrite the thing, so they had to let it stand, but add uh, corrections and mitigations in other places. So if you said, well, wait a minute, uh, it says this generation will not pass, but it obviously did, what's the story? The response would be, oh, well, but take a look at this over here, where it says, yeah, that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. Aha, now don't be one of those people. Oh, okay. Uh, so you just <laughs> refer him to Else. I mean, that's uh, one of the reasons I think you had mentioned that uh, one of Paul's letters had to be pseudepigrapha because he's dealing with this as a delayed response, right? Yeah. Which, uh, am I the only one that. that pictures a dog chasing its tail when they do stuff like this? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's the same sort of thing because they they're, they can't help reveal the actual scene of writing. Uh, they they almost can't avoid that if they're really going to come to grips with the problems they're dealing with. But in order to get the authority to be listened to to deal with those problems, they have to put on this uh, this false face. So they wind up inevitably contradicting themselves. Right. Uh, I love your take also on the uh, the comparison between the nine apostles of the New World in the Book of Mormon who said, you know, we want to speedily come to the kingdom. Because Jesus, before he ascends, he asks them all, you know, I give you one wish. <laughs> yeah. Which want? is why they're supposedly Nephites still walking on right. this earth. Nine of them say we want to just finish our work and go. Three of them say we want to tarry, right, until you mm -hmm. come again, which is uh, an exact um, replication of the New Testament with the Apostle John, who was told promised that he'd tarry until Jesus comes again, and Peter gets irritated. Peter says, um, you know, what, what's that about? And Jesus said, what's that to you, right? What, what do you care? Um, and this is exactly replicated. This is this is kind of a case in point of Joseph Smith taking all this stuff and, and redoing it in the new world. Plus, in the process, he got the bargain of uh, coming up with a new rationale for the original delay, because it seems pretty clear that... Uh, that the story first does assume that, uh, well, actually, I think it's a reference back to the, uh, this generation will not pass away, and then some right. standing here will not, uh, 
parish. Well, right. time went on, and uh, as far as they knew, there was only one guy who could claim to have been a surviving contemporary, and then he died. So it's the failure of those earlier prophecies that, that um, in John 21, it's trying to... Uh, to uh, mitigate uh, that uh, once this guy died they said well that's it that's the whole generation still he hasn't come and um and so uh, the way of dealing with that is to say, well, now, you know, technically Jesus didn't actually say he would survive to the crucifixion. He just said, if I wanted him to, what is that to you, Pete? Uh, I mean, it's like saying, if I wanted to send him to Mars, that's none of your business. Uh, so it's a way of, uh, I mean, that's not unreasonable, but it does seem to be damage control again. Well, uh, Smith took that to mean that, yeah, he was going to tarry till Jesus came, and Jesus must have known it would be many centuries, so John, or whoever the beloved disciple is, I think it was John, became in effect the wandering Jew who lived for, for century after century waiting for Jesus, and he said, well, if, if it happened with them, why not the three Nephites? So they have unnaturally prolonged lives, and they're, they're running around somewhere. Right, the whole idea that I want to tarry until you come again presupposes a delay of the uh, second coming. Well, I think yeah, you two tarry. are looking at it wrong. Uh, see, there were a couple years back I was in Vegas, and this guy uh, came up to me and told me he was an angel. Actually spent about an hour trying to convince me of it, then told me he couldn't fly because there were people around, and then when I says, well, let's walk where no one's around, and he <laughs> suddenly had something to do. I think you guys are looking at it wrong. There's people around, that's why. Bob, you can feel free to ignore everything Leighton says. I will probably edit it all out of the podcast. Yeah, anyway. He generally does anyway. So, <laughs> why didn't this guy say he was like Clarence and that he hadn't earned his wings yet? <laughs> well, because it was far more interesting you. to say he could fly, but just not around people. Just like transcendental meditation people. Yeah. Right. I still believe he was an angel. I, I, in my heart of hearts. Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, who knows? Maybe so. Uh, getting back to the point, <laughs> you um, yeah. mentioned this very interesting um, section with Peter and uh, the two others, James and John, that in the original Book of Commandments, Peter's uh, wish to you know come speedily into the kingdom was granted. But between the Book of Commandments and the re revision of it, which became the Doctrine and Covenants, he kind of stuck in this awkward passage about initially it was granted and then and then hey by the way why don't you go ahead and hang out with James and John and and uh, assist in this big you know lengthy evangelistic uh, mission um, and you so mentioned that, kinda, that, that also creates like a apostolic prototype for the three Nephites right which mm -hmm. which would then provide a prototype for Joseph Smith's own arrangement of the first presidency. Yeah, yeah, no accident, no coincidence there. As with the Gospels, uh, a lot of these stories are written to feather somebody's nest, to, to give somebody uh, credentials. Like uh, Catholics are, are very nearly right about that, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. It, it wasn't intended to uh, be a credential for the Roman bishop, but rather for the bishop of Antioch, because both of them claimed uh, Petrine foundation, 
And uh, they, that's why Rome added Paul, because they said, all right, you've got Peter too, but we've, we've got both of them. And, uh, and then they claimed it, but that, that is the point of that Matthean passage that's only in Matthew and was probably written in Antioch. The, the fans of Peter and the, the leaders of Antioch were saying, you see, Jesus gave this guy the authority, and he taught our bishops, and so we, we know better than you, you'd better obey us priestcraft, as the old rationalists used to say. <laughs> now, you had mentioned also something um, that uh, Joseph Smith, in, in doing this, was, was following the tradition of the biblical writers, it says, as when writers of Exodus 18 and Numbers 11 ascribe to Moses the pedigree for their own councils of elders. And then you don't clarify that. What, what were the writers of Exodus, was that the 70s, the Council of the 70s? Yeah, yeah, that seems to uh, have been uh, the um, the uh, fictitious credential for uh, the the so-called men of the great assembly who are mentioned often in uh, in uh, Jewish writings, and uh, that's I believe the Sanhedrin had that many. Uh, so that was that was a way of saying, yeah, Moses' spirit uh, came down upon these people who uh, were his subordinates, then his successors, and we're their successors. So it I seems see. like it's it's that sort of a thing, that, uh, so, yeah, this is the origin of our hierarchy. Right, so they've got a, a council there, and to falsify up some religious credentials, they make up the story about Moses being overworked, I guess, and having to distribute his authority to a <laughs> yeah, council exactly. that looks exactly yeah. like theirs. <laughs> you know, the craziest thing is uh, there are people, including my father and brother, who have attempted to set up businesses based on this very system. Wow. It hasn't worked for them, but I think if they just keep trying. Well, what do you mean, Leighton? What, what, what does that mean? You, that your dad would set up something where he's the prophet and he has two counselors? Essentially, what he would do is uh, he would set himself up like uh, with our real estate business and then he would be the highest and then uh, there would be my mother and maybe a brother working and then he would go out and underneath us it, it was almost like a pyramid scheme but it's it's exactly like this and he always told me that his intention was setting up this same hierarchy in a business and the same society that Joseph Smith was attempting to set up but failed because nobody was righteous enough, which is why he would go to untrained uh, people who were out of work in the ward and hire them to be in this hierarchy. Fascinating. That's almost like the Charles Sheldon novel, What Would Jesus Do?, where they try to uh, operate a newspaper and so on, as Jesus would if he were the boss. It's a fascinating experiment. <laughs> yeah, personal experience, awesome. it doesn't work. <laughs> That's awesome. Also, in, in your book, you mentioned in Chapter 6, uh, one of the funniest things I've heard in a long time. When these guys, uh, you see, you've been to a bunch of Pentecostal meetings and these people get up and, and uh, like utter prophecies or something. This is totally new to me because I haven't had any experience with this. But all these prophecies are, are kind of, they're supposed to be literally God speaking to the congregation, but they're just a kind of, again, a pastiche of, of uh, biblical lines, right? Yeah, because if you want it to sound like God, you have to uh, use, uh, you just reshuffle the old stuff, because if you say anything that uses modern idiom, people are going to say, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like God. I, I know what God sounds like from the Bible. That's why even the heavenly voice of the baptism of Jesus is cobbled together from three Old Testament passages. 
Right. But then <laughs> one step back and you think, why would God be quoting himself? <laughs> yeah, he's quoting right. himself, but doing it weekly. He's all, you remember that time when I said those three awesome things? I'm yeah. going to say those again. Except yeah, I'm going to yeah. jumble the words a little bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah, why, why have new material if, if you've if you got a new audience? Just use the old stuff which worked then. So Maybe he's just really lazy. <laughs> yeah, he's cheating off himself. Uh, <laughs> according to Mormons, uh, one day with God is like thousands of years, so maybe this is the seventh day. Maybe God just is uh, lazy and just laying around going, yeah, just use what you got. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, it worked the first time. <laughs> yeah, you also mentioned that uh, building blocks of, of Samuel's wall, I love that too, where you show... Uh, Samuel's on top of this big wall, right? And the funny story we talked about a couple weeks, you know, we did a podcast on Crazy Book of Mormon stories, and this this made it. He's on top of a wall, and they're trying to kill him because they're evil. Just like in the Old Testament, right? Mm. The prophets come, and they get angry at him for telling them they're bad. And mm. so they're trying to fire arrows and throw rocks. and. Tomatoes. I don't understand why a mass of people would be angry if a guy stood up there and <laughs> insulted them, screaming. <laughs> but they can't hit Samuel. But... <laughs> It's just like in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, uh, where uh, Indy's hanging off the remains of his rope bridge on this ledge, and all the thuggy assassins are letting loose of their arrows. Not a one of them hits him. Absolutely. <laughs> he was righteous. Actually, I, I later realized, in the context of the movie, that wasn't so stupid. He was the chosen agent of Shiva, but they, they didn't make it obvious that's why. It just seemed a little ridiculous, but... Uh, Hmm. So or Samuel, they just weren't trained shots. Yeah, that's what I always thought. Samuel says, 400 years pass not away, save the sword of justice falleth upon this people. And, you, you know, when you're reading that as a Mormon, you think, wow, that's a really good prophecy. But if you put yourself in the place of the people hearing it, so what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's 400 years from now. What, are all of those people going to live like the three meat fights for century after century? Just totally oh my bad. God! An earthquake's going to happen 400 years from now. I better get ready for it. <laughs> well, that's what fundamentalists say about uh, the Old Testament prophets. Oh yeah, Isaiah was predicting Jesus. Uh, yeah, that's really relevant to King Ahab. He was talking to. Uh, right. You'll be glad to know that 700 years from now, <laughs> you know, this shall be a sign unto you. A virgin shall give birth. <laughs> Uh, great, oh, 700 years, I'll mark that on my calendar. <laughs> yeah, I figure yeah. that's probably what happens with the whole 2012 fiasco. Uh, they were just marking their calendar for when God's second coming is coming. That's why. The Mayans. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, brother. Yeah. <laughs> you think Mormons would have something to say about that. I don't know if they do, but that's kind of uh, uh, working their side of the street, I would think. Yeah, that should tie in. It's a little later because they're the Lamanites, though. The Mayans, of course, are the remnants of the Lamanites. Well, Mormons so are smarter than these other guys who throw out the end of the world being on May 21st. They'll quietly <laughs> prepare for it, but they, they won't openly claim it unless something actually happens. Yeah, what do you think about that whole fiasco about May 21st being the end of the world and... Oh, we actually really meant, you know, October 21st, but it's gonna, really going to happen this time. Well, it's the delay of the parousia and the backpedaling, just like in the New Testament. <laughs> That's the same thing. It's almost like a, a lab experiment to see if the same thing will happen, and sure enough, it does. 
<laughs> but what really amazes me the most is how camping derived this from a, a very arbitrary, symbolic, and therefore uncontrollable uh, subjective reading of, of various things in the Bible. And you'd think he wouldn't have much confidence in this. And I think this is an interesting speculation. You know, I wonder if, if they meant this, well, then this would be the day to the end. But instead, he, he now thunders with the authority of the Word of God, and, and it does, just doesn't occur to him. The Bible may be infallible, but my reading of it is not necessarily infallible. I, I mean, I don't think... You know, if you want to be a good fundamentalist, I don't think you have to ignore that distinction, and it amazes me that, that a guy like him does. Over if and it, over. It's not yeah, the first time in, he's done it. In retrospect, in the 94, 96, whatever it was, yeah. there, I think he was a little more modest and said, this is my best calculation, though that's all it is, but I, I am convinced I think it will happen. And then when it didn't, he said, well, I, I said it was a theory, I, I was plainly wrong. All right, that shouldn't be that. I mean, he was a nut, but, but that's not all that embarrassing. You admit you uh, made a mistake somewhere, but now, no, if you don't believe this prediction, you don't believe the Word of God. Where does he get off? This is like he thinks he's the Pope. Uh, it's amazing. <laughs> well, what's amazing to me, too, is that he resolved the cognitive dissonance caused by the, the return of Christ not coming in the beginning of you know the rapture and the beginning of the weeping and wailing and blah, 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 by saying God was too nice. And what he's going to do is not going to make people suffer for five months, so he's going to compress it all on the Day of Judgment uh, in October. Yeah, and once again, I've got to say, uh, what evidence in the Bible do you have of God being nice? Well, not only that, but he believes in a, a literal hell, doesn't he? Uh, Weeping and wailing he and gnashing one point in his favor, he has become an annihilationist like the Jehovah's Witnesses. He figures, uh, well, people are going to be thrown into the lake of fire and destroyed, which won't be too pleasant, but at least that's the end of you. You won't be tortured forever. Gotcha. Uh, so, I mean, I have to give him credit for that. Uh, but but the uh, this uh, business about the... Uh, how God uh, is going to give us a break. Something like that does occur twice in the New Testament. In Mark 13, it says that the, the suffering of this period of tribulation will be so terrible, unlike anything before or since, uh, that uh, that uh, God, because God had mercy, he has shortened the time on his schedule, because if he hadn't, no human being would have survived. And then again in Second Peter, it uh, says, and this is the best of all the, uh, still, I mean, it's the best of a bad bunch of lame explanations, but why <laughs> is it that um, the uh, the world goes on as it always has, despite the promise of the second coming? Well, look, uh, God is merciful. He just doesn't want people to perish, so he's given you reprieve. Instead of mocking, you ought to be uh, grateful and repent. Well, you know, I guess God could do anything, and uh, that's, uh, I suppose that you could take that out, but it's just obviously, you know, like rationalizing. But he does have two precedents for uh, God changing the schedule out of mercy. Uh, it's, I guess it's <laughs> not bad, but it's again, it's just hopeless speculation. What possible reason is there even for a fundamentalist to believe this? It's amazing that any of them do. And why do they keep doing it over and over and over again? Well, I think they feel like they're strangers in this world, 
it's difficult for them to live in it, especially the way fundamentalism makes them uh, hate the world uh, to some degree, and uh, they'd like to, to be the heck out of it and rid of it, and it'd be much better to uh, be with Jesus, like Paul says, or whoever, in uh, Philippians. I don't know which to choose, whether to remain here for your sake or to go on and be with Christ. Well, that's the way fundamentalists are, and they do know they would rather go ahead and be with Christ. In this terrific movie, The Rapture, uh, written by and directed by Michael Tolkien from the early 90s, this woman is in a sect that believes the rapture is coming real quick, and she takes her daughter out to this, she's a widow, she takes her daughter out to the state park to wait because she's sure it's going to be any day. Days pass, weeks pass, and uh, her daughter says, Mommy, why can't we just go to heaven now and see Daddy? And finally, she says, Okay, and shoots the kid in the head. And oh. was about to kill herself, but can't do it. And things like this have happened. And uh, it's that's a, an acute illustration of what's going on. I just can't wait to get out of here and get to heaven. Uh, you know, a better ending would be that she shot her kid and then Christ actually came right after. That's exactly what happened. <laughs> oh. It is an amazing movie. It's really see this. fascinating. That's fantastic. Huh. What When you wrote that article, I don't want you to spoil it, but with C.S. Lewis's uh, triumvirate there of Liar, Lunatic, and Lord, what was your conclusion? Was he Lord? Was Joseph Smith Lord? Uh, he was all of them. He was <laughs> just like Madame Blavatsky and uh, probably Rajneesh and several of these people. They, they're liars. They're certainly hoaxers. Like Madame Blavatsky would have these seances where she would get messages from the ascended masters, and there were folded pieces of paper that she had somebody pushing through the ceiling. Uh, Ducks, uh, and so they float down. Oh, it's from Kutumi uh, in Tibet. Uh, I mean, it's just cheap imposture. And yet, look at the woman's writings. It's gigantic books filled with with complex erudition. What is going on? I mean, if if she just wanted to make a buck, there's easier ways of doing it. And I think that's true with several of these people. They do appear to be hoaxers, but they they somehow seem to believe it themselves. And uh, so uh, I, they're very complex uh, personalities, and that lack of integration probably means that there's a little bit of a lunatic in them, but highly functioning. Even Jim Jones, who's an extreme example, he, he became a megalomaniac, as everybody knows, and yet uh, he, he was a real uh, social activist and, and did good for people. And uh, so we are, what are you going to say? It's not like either half is some sort of sham. Though he is also a hoaxer, all of them were. So Smith, I think, was liar, lord, and lunatic. Well, it's a lot like those women who, in order to get attention, they hurt their children when they go to the hospital. I mean, any other person, knowing this person, would think, oh, they're the nicest uh, people in the world. But then once you discover, uh, what is that, Korshkins? Or what is I, that? Uh, Munchausen Munchausen. Yeah, yeah. Once they hey, discover Layton, that, yeah. Why is it just women? 
Uh, well, that's because that's all I've ever seen on the uh, news reports. As well. Yeah, me too. I, I wonder if there are any dads that do that. I don't know. I've never yeah. heard of well, Why don't you explain that to us, Mr. Physician? Why are we only seeing women? I will I'll explain your misogyny at a later time. Oh. Yeah, I haven't seen the epidemiology of Munchausen by proxy Layton. I do believe it probably is uh, predominantly female, but yeah, I don't know why. So in other words, kiss my ass. Well, you just mentioned only female. I don't think it's exclusively Well, I don't female. think it's exclusively female either. But you just said it's like the women. Basically, you're an asshole. You're a misogynistic well, asshole. That was already decided. Why do you have to point and, and, my uh, ass at our guest? And I think Bob agrees with me here. <laughs> Bob, do you agree that my ass is nice? <laughs> I don't even know how we got to that one. <laughs> I thought I was following the insults pretty well, but... Uh... It, uh, Bob, do you know the... Um, the rule of Godwin's law that it approaches one an argument on the internet approaches uh, the probability of one that someone's going to mention Hitler. The longer <laughs> the longer you spend on our show, eventually the probability approaches one that Layton's going to mention his ass. Yeah. Oh, I see, I see. Or penis. Uh, don't forget that. Right? <laughs> Just less of that dimension. Uh, where were we before you, your misogyny interrupted uh, us? Well, I was just pointing out. Oh, yeah, Yeah, that's right. Joseph Smith. Uh, Because it seemed to me that you were um, very, very polite and uh, respectful in um, this uh, Latter-day Scripture book. Yeah, when he... I mean, I'm sure he was a rogue in many ways, but that's really irrelevant uh, to him as as an author uh, or even as a a prophet. Uh, There's... uh, uh, the idea is that uh, what I mean, if you believe he was truly a prophet, he's uh, it's like this treasure in earth and vessels. Uh, if if it turns like Martin Luther King, this guy had big personal problems, and yet who really cares? Uh, look at what he did. Uh, he was an amazing prophetic figure, and uh, the flaws he had just seemed somewhat insignificant. Uh, and uh, it might be the same way with Joseph Smith, but I only know him as a writer, really, and. Uh, there's no reason to uh, uh, make him look like a bad guy there. He was, if, if I'm right about what he's doing and why with the Bible, he, he was a very ingenious writer. Uh, I agree. If, if he was exclusively responsible for the Book of Mormon, I think that his uh, the Mormons try to sell him as uneducated. How could he possibly do this? It had to be miraculous. He couldn't have written it. He had to be translated. Um, if he did it, I think he's... Um, uh, a brilliant guy. I think yeah, he probably had possible. help with Signe Rignan, uh, especially. Could have. And yet, there's no... Uh, it's not like the book is uh, filled with specialized knowledge. He's kind of making it up. Though, though I believe people have shown that some phraseology and ideas he may well have gotten from current Bible commentaries. Uh, and so he couldn't have been just an illiterate rube. In fact, that's a common apologetic motif uh, it's said of Jesus, of Peter and John, of Muhammad, and others that uh, they, you see, they, they were uneducated. They must have been. Flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my Father in heaven. So we don't really know if they were or not. It's just a way of uh, underlining the claim. Oh, yeah, this, this wasn't any human invention. Right. <laughs> Certainly he makes that claim. And he did have in his possession a Urim and Thummim. And he had that beforehand, too. I think he had that when he was uh, glass-looking and treasure-seeking. Yeah, That's... yeah, the seer stone. Yeah. Well, that's not much different than what the original Urim and Thummim were supposed to be. 
they, they were apparently some kind of lots or dice or something. And uh, one of the theories is that they were painted white on one side and black on the other, and you kind of tossed them like dice asking a question. And if you got uh, two whites, it's yes, two blacks, it's no. And if it was uh, black and white, you know, ask again or something. <laughs> Uh, so, so the Magic 8-Ball, uh, the Urim and Thummim yeah, were the exactly. predecessors to the Magic 8-Ball. Exactly. It, it's yeah. just that we've kind of, uh, well, some people have progressed beyond that. Some people still haven't. But at least we think that's what's going on with the what what they were, but uh, nobody That's really interesting knows. that you mentioned it doesn't require any specialized knowledge, and, and looking back over it, that's probably right. You know, you hear claims that there are uh, chiastic structures in there, but you know those I think are pretty weak and uh, subject to interpretation, uh, and probably since the Book of Mormon is so goddamn repetitive, it may just happen naturally. Yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's just kind of a uh, a kind of common pattern like Hebrew parallelism in the Psalms. Uh, you know, once you kind of get the hang of it, you you just sort of know how it's supposed to sound, and you're not diagramming it or anything. So I would kind of, I mean, there are a lot of arguments about chiastic structures in the New Testament, and somehow it just, it, it always strikes me as something like the Bible code, that it, I, it just seems to me there's something amiss here, that it may be some uh, assumptions people are bringing to the text somehow, or they're seeing things that uh, are there for other reasons. I don't know what to make of it, but it's, it, that kind of argument seems a little odd to me. Yeah, so basically all Joseph Smith would have had to have done to make the Book of Mormon is to have uh, an intimate knowledge of the Bible itself, which clearly yeah. he, he was he was brought up in the burned-over district. Well, and he was also thinking about these stories from his very childhood. In fact, his right. uh, mother wrote in her diary about how he would regale the entire family with these stories. Yeah, right, to me, he, that's his case closed right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, why would uh, God raise up a prophet who would uh, already be doing this stuff, and making up stories? been practicing their entire life on the right. story. And the, the source is unimpeachable. <laughs> it's his mother who's saying this. Yeah, yeah. So, though, uh, I think the, to keep it in perspective, Bible writers seem to have done the same thing. And uh, so it's not exactly fake. That's why I like to compare it to speaking in tongues. People who do it say that it's more than it is, but and they're wrong about it. It's not uh, foreign languages as they think, but I don't think the Bible ever even really says that. I think they're misinterpreting the Acts 2 passage on Pentecost, but what is happening is a very old practice of a kind of dissociation and just speaking forth the uh, spiritual ecstasy you feel and tongues of men and angels and it's not stupid it's not pathological it's just that they're making pointless superfluous embarrassing claims for it and invite people to say this is just hogwash well it's not hogwash it's just uh, they're they're uh, overdoing their claims about it and I'd say the same about the the uh, the Book of Mormon. Uh, the guy's not actually divinely inspired, but precisely if he did fabricate it, it shows what an amazing uh, source of inspiration he had in his creative subconscious. Certainly, no less than the other pseudepigrapha that's in the New Testament already. Yeah, or in the yeah. Old Testament, I guess for the for that matter, Jonah, Daniel. 
do you do you agree with Bart Ehrman? He recently wrote a book kind of about this whole thing called Forged, and he claimed that about half, or maybe even a little more than half, of the Bible was pseudepigrapha, false writing. Uh, that's Is probably that... right, which surprises me in a sense, because uh, Bart thinks that anybody that holds to the Dutch radical hypothesis, as it's called for the people that propounded it, uh, that Paul wrote, that the historical Paul wrote none of the letters attributed to him, he thinks that's a crazy view, though it seems to me the arguments for it are very powerful, but he's, he's kind of still within the mainstream view of uh, like society, biblical literature, and so he sticks with the idea that seven of the epistles with Paul's name on right. uh, actually were written. I, I'm amazed he's not a bit more open to, I think it's much more pseudographical than he thinks, but I think he certainly is right about that. I've always wondered how you would tell which one, which letters of Paul are, quote, authentic. Uh, I think it'd be easy to tell, you know, if they have, like, the pastoral epistles, if they have concerns and language that's common in the second century, you, you exclude it. I don't right. know how you include it. I don't know how you say without an original autograph or you know a couple centuries out. I don't know how you say Paul wrote it. I don't think he can. In fact, it's analogous to the apophatic theology, as the uh, Eastern Orthodox call it. They say, look, obviously God is such must be such a mystery. No one could uh, could describe God. All we can do, however, is get closer by dispelling what has to be false ideas about God. At least that's something. And, and for the rest, we just worship and we can't understand. Uh, that is an appropriately humble view. Well, in the same way, I'm afraid all you can do with sayings attributed to Jesus or writings attributed to Paul are to find criteria that show they couldn't be what they're cracked up to be. And the rest of it, you simply will never know, since uh, they may be spurious, too, and there's just not enough evidence. You just cannot know, and nor can you take it for granted, because we know pseudepigraphy was common in the, in the New Testament. I mean, <laughs> the, the so-called Pauline epistles actually tell you to, uh, to uh, be on guard for fake ones. <laughs> right. And, oh, this is my signature, this is the mark of authenticity in all my real epistles. Uh, wait a minute. Uh, don't be upset by a letter supposedly from us. Uh, and then you think, well, wait a minute. Uh, when he says in Galatians, you see the big letters I'm having to make with my own hand here at the bottom of the thing, like he's dictated it to, to the secretary otherwise, which, which they did, but he's now writing an actual autograph. You see, this is the mark of authenticity. That's a literary device. It, it, it assumes you were reading something that does not have such a signature as if it were a printed book, and you want the reader somehow to know that, that the writer, when he actually wrote the letter, did have a big block letter signature, so you have him describe it, which he would never do in an actual letter. He would just simply have the signature. Uh, so right. to describe it means this is spurious. It, it it's, uh, it's posing as a copy of an original that had this, but since you can't see that, uh, you have to be told, which means it can't be real. 
Which right. once again points to the fact that uh, there was rampant uh, copying, rampant plagiarism out there of things. And I, I, literally, how can you tell the difference between any of it? It's, it, it's interesting. You, I think in this book, you mentioned that First Thessalonians, there was a reason for First Thessalonians uh, to be considered pseudepigraphy. I can't remember what it was. Well, I think at one point it says, have this letter read to the congregation. Well, it, uh, it assumes a liturgical reading. And uh, if it were actually by Paul, why would you have to say that if it's ostensibly to the congregation anyway? Uh, as ba- F.C. Bauer pointed out, this means someone is trying to slip this into the cycle of readings. Right. Uh, and, uh you had mentioned also, I think, was it in the empty tomb about First Corinthians, um, the the, the first kind 15, of three through eleven. That's what it is. Yeah, the the first kind of list of um, Christian creeds. Um, I, I think it was in the empty tomb where where you argued that that was uh, a later insertion. Is that yeah, right? And, and I think even, you even debated William Lane Craig about it. Yeah. Yeah, he uh, he he takes this approach that uh, nobody thinks that, so it's a crazy idea. And uh, <laughs> though he did come up, I have to give him credit for coming up with specific arguments. Though I think they're all wrong. Uh, they're not yeah. stupid, but they're mistaken. And I go into that in like a little appendix to that. Uh, he's article. kind of a jerk because in the debate, I think he said no serious scholar holds this view. So he's kind of jabbing at oh, you, right? Oh, condescension yeah, is part of the debate. Clearly, you're you're not a serious scholar. Oh yeah, a lot of people say that. Uh, Bart Ehrman said that in the uh, uh, interview with uh, Reginald Findlay on the Infidel guy, and uh, it's it's just like I don't uh, like uh, somebody like me with a Christ myth theory or Paul didn't write the epistles. I could be a crank and a nut, but then again, I might just be in the position of uh, innovators like Thomas Kuhn talks about in his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, because when a Galileo or a Darwin or somebody comes along at first, everybody thinks they're nuts, and they really have to jump through a lot of hoops to show that their new proposed paradigm makes more sense of the evidence and and even then people with a lot invested in the traditional the the consensus view are going to be skeptical but that's good because you you should have to do a good job proving the utility of a new theory Uh, otherwise there'd be no reason to accept it Uh, but my point is i could be some lunatic but i might be uh one of these innovators, not not that it's my paradigm, I've gotten it from 19th century scholars, but what you have to show is why it does not make adequate or better sense of the data, and these people never do. They just laugh it off. Oh, everybody knows that's not true. Uh, come on, that, that's what they said about the, like Luther said about Copernicus, this mad fellow would turn the earth on its head. Sorry, Marty, it turns out he was right. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to reach through my little uh, iPod and, and strangle that guy because that's how science works. Yeah. You know, tectonic plates, uh, the guy yep. was laughed at. Um, but And if he couldn't have supported the theory with evidence, then he would have continued to be laughed at and, and uh, you know, would have went by the wayside. But yeah, it's to start a spark within the community itself, because not only is science about one person researching, but it's, it sparks ideas in other scientists. Yes, yes. Right, so that's, you've got to take the... 
Yeah, you got to take the arguments on their own merits. And so what he's doing there is he's uh, either an ad hominem or he's, he's um, deflecting the argument itself by saying, oh, forget about that. No one takes it seriously. Yep. So he doesn't have to address the specific arguments um, that you're claiming. Uh, though I will give him credit on the first Corinthians 15 thing, he did, though I, I don't believe he's correct, but there he did actually uh, advance a counter-argument. I have to uh, give him credit for that much. Yeah, he, he gave a few He gave a few reasons, um, and it was interesting hearing you guys. It's, it's very interesting knowing, uh, hearing two people know what they talk about uh, and they disagree, because you'll never get more information, I think, than when that happens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, it was a really interesting debate. Um, I really dislike William Lane Craig, uh, especially for his uh, uh, dogged um, advancing of the Kalam cosmological argument, which, which should just be relegated to the waste bin of history. Stop advancing that argument. But he also... I'm not even sure I know what that is. I've heard of it for years, but it's just never interested me to look into it. Somehow. It's terrible. You know the, the, the first cause argument from Aristotle... Everything's got to go back to a first cause. The Kalam cosmological argument says whatever it, it, its innovation is, whatever begins to exist must have a cause. You see how that just neatly excludes God from the counter-argument, well, what was the cause of God? Well, he doesn't begin to exist. So they say he didn't begin to exist, so therefore, problem solved. Sure. So William Lane Craig advances that all the time. It's a terrible, terrible argument because it's a case of special pleading because there's nothing else that, other than God that did not begin to exist. Except numbers and feelings. Well, there, yeah, numbers and feelings. Ooh. <laughs> well, what are they? Is it like Philo and St. Augustine saying that these things are, are uh, structures in the mind of God and therefore are eternal but not separate from Him? Oh, man, it's, um, it's amazing. We had an argument with these guys from Evidence for Faith who are fundamental uh, Christians, evangelical Christians, and they they counter argue that numbers always existed, and I told them it was an abstract concept, and uh, they just replied that they exist self-existently. Self-existent. <laughs> I wouldn't say reply. It was screamed it out as we're like, okay, this discussion is just stupid. We're moving on. Anyway, it was it was it was a little rough. That debate was a little rough. Uh, very I uh, am more and more thinking uh, that uh, I'm more and more grouping apologists with uh, TV evangelists and faith-healing charlatans. Uh, I'm so annoyed with and sick of these cheap tactics and bogus arguments. It's just, you can't have a serious discussion. That is true. It's almost pointless. Uh, I suppose it's good for people who are listening, like when I was listening to your debate, I thought you made a lot of really good points against uh, William Lane Craig that he refused to address, and the first thing he would say after you sat down was, well, he never addressed any of my points. It was, it was oh, it was, it was driving me nuts. Um, you had given tons of examples of prior art, essentially, that the New Testament authors had stolen this from, um, and he never addressed why that wasn't good enough, right? He said, yeah, well, yeah. Well, that's because it would have refuted his arguments, so it's not good enough. Yeah, well, it's frustrating from the sidelines, you know, seeing the, the debate scored by tactics rather than actual arguments. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, he, he really is great for cheap tactics. Yes. Uh, it, it's disgraceful. Uh, I've, I've debated many other people, and none of them have gone quite to that level, though they do all tend to just ignore what you say and move on to something else. But, right. Uh, right. 
One guy told me once that the argument from the parallel uh, resurrection stories and such was very powerful, and that was really a good one. But I've debated him again, and he he always uh, publicly says, "Oh no, there's nothing to that." Uh, right, that's what you got to <laughs> say. <laughs> well, that's ridiculous. It's very frustrating. Anyway, I would love to have you back on in the near future to discuss the empty tomb. Um, oh yeah, fascinating stuff. I'd love to. That was quite possibly one of the best books I've read on the resurrection ever. Uh, the a, carrier stuff in there is just really fascinating. It, but he deals with the rest of First Corinthians fifteen, and he, he makes great observations about it. If if I think you if you read that book, it is so damning to a literal interpretation of all this stuff. Um, with uh, the you know what happened with the actual laws. You'd have to accept that the Sanhedrin was violating the laws by putting him in the tomb permanently <laughs> when he was a criminal oh that they had, you know, turned over. Your stuff on uh, the First Corinthians 15, Carrier's stuff. Uh, I mean, it's 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 exceptional, exceptional book, and I'd recommend it to anyone interested in the yeah. topic. So I'd love to have yeah, you back on to talk it. about it. It's great. A lot of great people in that book. Yeah, it was terrific. John Loft his books on the resurrection and. Uh, Christianity in general, these, uh, these, uh, was it the, the Christian delusion and the, I think it's the, the next one that's about to come out from Prometheus is the, the end of Christianity or something. I, I've got an essay in each one of them and a lot of real good ones by various people in there. Christian delusion is exceptional as well. Um, that's always been my favorite. That covers kind of everything across the board. The Empty Tomb is about the resurrection story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but both both exceptional books. Did uh, Christian Delusion win an uh, an award? I think it won an award. Mm, I, I don't know. May well have. He's too good know, to uh, pay attention to that. <laughs> What's that? I'm sorry. Well, I was just saying you were too high up on the totem pole to pay attention to if you got an award or not. Or just too confused. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I was uh, pleasantly shocked to learn that... Uh, an intervarsity book, um, the historical Jesus Five Views, where they uh, they kindly invited me to represent the Christ myth theory, and uh, and then uh, John Dominic Cross and uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, well, the uh, Luke Timothy Johnson, I uh, James D G Dunn and uh, Daryl Bach from Dallas Seminary had their views, and then we all. Uh, critiqued each other's, and I thought it was a real good book. It got some uh, award from Christianity Today magazine, astonishingly. Wow. So, uh, That's well-deserved, too, by the way, Leighton. If you want to read that one, I've got it. It's uh, Bob's is the first essay in there, and then what they do is they have uh, people critique them, so the, the rest of the contributors of the book get to critique the essays of everyone else. And so oh, it's their essays fast. followed by a bunch of critiques, and then the other guy's essay followed by a bunch of critiques. It is a fantastic book. Fantastic yeah, I, book. I really have to to praise InterVarsity Press for, for taking this approach with this and other books where they're really trying to, to get an honest discussion of the whole spectrum of things. That That's really an advance over the old approach where you only heard a, as much of an opposing view as you needed to to refute it. Right. Uh, but this is a whole different thing, and they, they really deserve credit. Right. Uh, always great having you on. Like I said, if you wouldn't mind, maybe in the near future we'll have you on to discuss the empty tomb. Sure, I'd love to. Yeah, great talking with you guys. Thanks. Uh-huh.
Thanks, Take care. Have a good